Hill Church this morning. My name's Steve Frederick. Uh, I'm the senior minister here, uh, and it really is encouraging to be able to share uh, the start of Christmas Day together with all of you. Uh, we're going to have a look together this morning at the passage, the second passage that Fiona read for us a moment ago from Matthew chapter 1. Uh, I'd encourage you to grab your Bibles and open that up again. Uh, it'll be really handy for me, but also for you if you had that open there on your laps in front of you. Uh, just in case you're looking to find that page again, it is page 965. Page 965. Here's a big personality. She is a big personality. I wonder if you've ever heard someone use that euphemism of another person. I say euphemism because when we say that someone else is a big personality, we're usually communicating perhaps that they're a little overbearing. Uh, some folk have a personality either so dominant or so magnetic that others are automatically and maybe irresistibly pulled into a passive orbit around them whenever they walk into the room. Uh, there are those who so inflate themselves and their own sense of importance perhaps that there is ultimately little room left for those around them to really exist as more than observers, more than a passive audience. Those whose arrival, perhaps, sucks all the oxygen out of the room, whose mere presence barely allows others to be. Uh, perhaps you're a little bit edgy about navigating one or two of these big personalities over the coming few weeks, with Christmas Day today, New Year's Eve, perhaps. What's truly remarkable, though, as we look at today's passage, is that when God himself, the one for, for whom all of creation is too small to contain him, when God himself is born into the world as a man, far from suffocating everything else at his arrival, he instead breathes unexpected new life and hope into the world and those who are around about him. If anyone was to ever find themselves feeling a little bit marginalised, felt pushed aside by Jesus' unexpected birth, by the birth of God as man, I reckon it'd probably have to be Joseph, wouldn't it? Have a look with me at our opening passage this morning uh, that describes Jesus' birth. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Oh, sorry, chapter 1, verse 18. There we read, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Here, Joseph, who is legally bound to Mary in betrothal, uh, betrothal is like, a, it's still a legal agreement, it's just before the marriage has been consummated. Joseph discovers that his future is not going to be playing out as both he and Mary had imagined it might have. And it's not simply that Joseph finds his place assumed by a rival husband. That's not what's happening here, is it? For Mary is with child quite apart from the will or the actions of any man, of any husband whatsoever. The birth of this child is the result of God's decision to enter into the world. Mary has willingly embraced this pregnancy, but it's not the result of human planning or decision. It's not the project of a husband's longing, 
or a husband's ambition that plays any part in the birth of this child. Uh, there are plenty who might imagine that to find oneself in Joseph's situation here might prove a little emasculating. However, I don't actually think there's any suggestion in this passage that Joseph suspects Mary of adulterous unfaithfulness. Luke's gospel, another gospel like Matthew's gospel, records how Elizabeth, Mary's relative, openly celebrated Mary's anticipated pregnancy even before Jesus had been conceived in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit. Mary's pregnancy by God's Spirit was not a secret that she kept from the family. It was a reality that was acknowledged by the whole family and even celebrated. Songs were composed by Elizabeth in praise of this astounding reality. I think it's just that Joseph is simply unsure of what this extraordinary event means for his continuing place in things. When one discovers that their fiancé is about to give birth to God in the flesh, might that not be a hint that it's time for you to bow out grace, gracefully? Uh, Israel's law had effectively insisted that a marriage not go ahead in this kind of situation. Yet if Joseph were to simply call a public end to the marriage, Mary would have been tarred with the scandal of behaviour that she was actually completely innocent of. And being a righteous man, Joseph concludes that the best course of action is simply to cancel the betrothal quietly, rather than wrongfully expose Mary to unjustified public slander or shame. And yet, Joseph is about to discover that when God makes his grand entrance into the world, he doesn't do so at the expense of his creatures by pushing them to the margins, by making everyone else around him an irrelevance. God doesn't behave that way when he enters the room, so to speak. God doesn't enter in, into creation in a self-aggrandizing competition with his frail human creatures, but in order to display his compassion toward them. We get a hint of that in the following verses. Have a look with me at verse 20. Verse 20. This is following on after Joseph's um, reflections about calling a quiet end to the planned marriage. Verse 20 we read, But after Joseph had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. Fear is a perfectly reasonable response, a perfectly reasonable emotion for Joseph to be experiencing at this point. Throughout Matthew's gospel, this story of Jesus' life, Throughout the accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, fear is how people repeatedly respond 
upon witnessing God do something incomprehensible. Fear is how the disciples would later respond when they witnessed Jesus quietening a storm with just one word of command. Fear is how the disciples respond when they witnessed Jesus walking on the waves. Fear is how the women responded when the angel announced to them Jesus' resurrection from the dead and how they responded when the resurrected Jesus himself appeared to them and spoke with them in the flesh, in person. And fear is how Joseph responds when he realises the virgin woman he is to marry is with child by way of God's power. Fear is how people understandably respond when witnessing God doing something incomprehensible. And what Joseph is trying to process at this point certainly is beyond beyond comprehension, isn't it? And yet the angel assures Joseph that the divine conception of this child isn't meant as a challenge to Joseph. It's meant as a comfort Have a look with me again at verses 20 to 21. Verse 20 to 21, at the angel's words there. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. You are to give him the name Jesus, Joseph is told, because he will save his people from their sins. There's something of a curiosity in these words that the angel speaks to Joseph. The actual name Jesus means God saves. But the angel declares that it is Jesus who will save his people. So which is it? Is it God who saves or is it this human child himself who will save? Both truths seem to be being presented to Joseph here by the angel's announcement. The apparent tension about who exactly is going to be doing the saving I think is resolved in the most wonderful way in the verse that follows it in verse 23. Glance down there again with me, verse 23. We read that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This child Jesus is Emmanuel. He himself is the God who saves, here with us, born in the flesh. It's striking later on, we don't have time to look at it this morning, but if you were to read perhaps ahead with family later on today from chapter 2 of Matthew's Gospel, that Joseph goes on to play a striking role in actually saving Jesus. But here what's foregrounded is that Jesus is the one who, as God with us, will save. And I guess that leaves us with this question, final question, what exactly does it even mean to have one's sins forgiven? What does it mean for one's sins to be saved from one's sins, to be saved from one's own wrongdoing? That can be a bit of a flippant slogan that Christians throw around sometimes, isn't it? To be saved from our sins. But what is actually being claimed for in a statement such as that? Uh, Perhaps it means 
to be saved from our guilt, to be saved from being found to be objectively in the wrong. Uh, there are many times in which I've been very grateful when people have saved me from becoming guilty, when they've pointed out that I'm about to do something that would label me guilty. But once I've performed the action, there's not really anyone else can do to change that reality. I'm guilty, I'm guilty, I'm guilty, and that's it. And yet here we read that Jesus will save people from their sins. He can take those who are guilty and make them not guilty any longer. Perhaps it also means to be saved from condemnation, that is to be saved from the censure and the judgment that comes from us being in the wrong. To have that threat of judgment lifted from our shoulders so that it doesn't hover over us any longer. To be saved from our sin might mean to be saved from shame. To be saved from the crushing emotional and psychological experience of being exposed as wrong being exposed as less than we should be, from the humiliation of being seen of and thought of as morally compromised. To be saved from our sins can mean to be saved from the bitter fruit and consequences of our wrongdoing. Saved from the brokenness, the recriminations, the relational, social, physical consequences that flow from our sin, from our wrongdoing. This child who is God with us has the capacity to free us from every thread, from every remaining sticky strand of our own wrongdoing that might cling to us. Uh, One of the banes of Christmas Day for me is, especially if I get a book, I always love to get uh, a book, receive a book as a Christmas present. You know, when you take off the sticker off the back of the book, I mean, maybe you don't do it, it's one of the things I always do. First thing I do is to remove any you know, rogue sticker that might be marring the beautiful cover. But the problem is when you take the sticker off and there's stuff left, perhaps it's the underside of the paper that's just there covering things up, or maybe it's that sticky residue that doesn't matter how many times you try and rub it or wipe it, it it never quite fully goes. We can often feel that there is something that is stuck to us as a result of our own wrongdoing, whether it be guilt the threat of condemnation, the lingering shame, the consequences that flow from some wrongdoing that we found ourselves guilty of far in the past, in the distant past. This child, who's God with us, has the capacity to free us from every remaining sticky strand of our own wrongdoing, that it might no longer linger over us. When God becomes flesh, Far from sucking all the oxygen out of the room by sheer force of his own divine glory and majesty, he instead offers to take, make, sorry, he offers to make new space to welcome us back in after we've been forced to the margins because of our own failures, because of our own guilt, because of our own shame. When God enters into creation, he doesn't fill it so that there's no room for anyone else. He instead makes room for even the guilty, the sinner, the one covered in shame, the one suffering even from the guilt of others. He makes space for them to rest and find themselves at peace. How about we pray that that might be our experience this Christmas Day. Dearest Father, we confess your glory and your majesty. We confess that 
creation, which is the work of your hand, is far too small to contain your glory and your holiness. And yet, Father, you somehow entered into it in the person of a child, the Lord Jesus, that you might lift from us every sticky strand of our past wrongdoing, that we might have space to delight in you and fellowship with you. Father, we ask that it might be this Emmanuel, this son Jesus, this one who is God who saves, to whom we might turn this Christmas and in whom we might delight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.